and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Greg Kinn. Now, Greg had massive hits in the 80s with Jeopardy, the breakup song, and released his latest album, Rekindled, his first in almost 21 years. I mean, he's been busy. In the meantime, he was a DJ for 18 years. He's a novelist, and he shares some incredible stories during this interview. Very fun guy. Really enjoyed the interview, and I hope you do as well. So, Greg, um, growing up, who are some of your musical influences? Well, you know, that, that's a real good question because I started off as a folky. And my when I was like 12, 13 years old, my, my slightly older cousins were into the Kingston Trio, Peter Paul and Mary, stuff like that. And uh, I, you know, I, I I remember getting into it uh, from that, you know, that kind of commercial stuff. And then, and then I got freewheeling by Bob Dylan, and it changed my life. And I started thinking, wow, if this guy can write songs, I can write songs. So, and you know, freewheeling was probably uh, the main influence. I'm early in all my life and the fact that Bob Dylan could write songs that inspired me to write songs so it was, it was a lot of fun how old were you when you wrote your first song about 13 I think right. I remember my first song right. it was called hey hey pretty girl <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a pretty dumb song but I remember like Hey, pretty girl, da 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 da. Hey, pretty girl, da 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 da. And I was, you know, but the the thing was, I actually wrote it. I created it from thin air. And once you exercise that creative muscle that's in your brain somewhere, you know, once that happens, man, you're hooked. And I, I've been chasing that muse. The bulk of my adult life. Right. So after you wrote that, you know, hey, hey, uh, little girl, uh, how many other songs did you write when you were that young? Pretty uh, a bunch. I, you know, um, when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I got a guitar, and uh, I, I started, you know, I, I learned the basic three chords of rock, and you know, I made a career basically from doing those three chords. And I, I remember uh, writing a whole bunch of songs. Once I wrote the first one, it was like the floodgates were open and, uh, you know, I couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't do, do it enough. And the same thing happened, by the way, to uh, my literary career. When I was starting to write, I was writing short stories and stuff like that, and I thought to myself, hey, you know, once you crack that ice and once you've tasted it, uh, it becomes a lifelong endeavor. What do you, like, it's probably, I guess, choosing between your favorite kid, but do you prefer to write songs or do you prefer to write, like, short stories slash novels? Oh, man, that that's a bad question because I, <laughs> I can't, I really can't. 
differentiate. I mean, I love writing music and I love playing gigs. As a matter of fact, you know, we just played a gig this past weekend and I was telling the guys, you know, playing gigs, live gigs, keeps me up. You know, it keeps me, you know, getting out there and having fun every week or so. It, it, it's a major deal. Uh, but then again, there's nothing like when you're sitting down at the computer and you start to come up with an, with an idea for a story and you start writing it and it just begins to unravel and write itself. You know, I, I, I have a lot of uh, theories about songwriting, but the, the bottom line was you got to do it. You know, whatever, right. whatever you can't. You just got to start and do it. And my, you know, my theory has always been write it. Write it even if it sucks. Mm -hmm. Because, hey, let's face it, it's going to probably suck anyway in the the early days. But you got to do it anyway. You got to start it. You got to work on it. But once you're in the middle of the story, God, that, you you know, it doesn't get much better than that. Now, when you like wrote, like I guess before you got your work published, you know, writing a novel, did any of them just go by the wayside? The, the first novel you wrote was that the first one was published, or did you like struggle? No, for a while? no, I I wrote a couple. I had what's I'm trying to think back. I wrote a couple of really bad ones <laughs> first. I remember uh, during my cocaine days. <laughs> That was about 20 years ago. I started writing a thing called Devil Dust, and it was about this this band that finds a flask of uh, cocaine that it it never runs out. <laughs> I can't really tell you. It was a really wacky story. Right. But uh, and I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a horror show, which was my first published novel, but I wrote that in, in 1996, and it started, first of all, I wrote it as a short story. And uh, about a year later, I went back and said, you know, this is better than a short story. So I filled it in, and it became a novel. Right. Uh, now, like you mentioned your cocaine days, did you like actually get any other inspiration from that, like you know, songs as well? Oh gosh, yeah. Oh, are you kidding me? I listen. We were we were a real rock and roll band back in the eighties. We were on drugs. We were chasing women. We were playing gigs. We were flying around the world. And I got to tell you, when you're young, it's a lot of fun. Right. Um, I remember going, you know, going to Europe and and going to. the foreign lands where we were, didn't, you know, we didn't know anybody. We didn't even know how to say hello in in the uh, in the language of that day. But I remember we had a ball. We went all around the world and played music. And I, I think to myself, wow, you know, that was that was a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that uh, I had that period of my life. Yeah. What was a favorite country of yours to visit? Uh, oh, I guess it would have to be, well, probably England. Right. And I love England. Uh, we played some wonderful gigs back there in the early days. Germany was always big. Oh, and I love uh, Holland. I love Amsterdam. 
hey man, we would we would circle that oh, you know, in, in a month we're going to Amsterdam. It's like, oh my God, everything is legal in Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, so right. I, my guys would be all pumped up and they had a hash bar in the actual place that we were playing. Mm-hmm. We were playing at the Paradiso in Amsterdam and there was a hash bar upstairs. So we would go upstairs after the sound check and get blitzed. <laughs> Come back down and have another show. It was wonderful. I remember uh, we were tra- you know, traveling around all through uh, Europe, and you know, we didn't know anything. We were a bunch of boys from Berkeley, California. We didn't know shit from Shinola, man. And I, you know, we would be looking. I remember looking for a gig, and if we had uh, been driving. In the in um, in Germany, in the countryside, we're looking for this rock festival in in a place called Laura Lee, and uh, it was on the Rhine River. I remember that, and we couldn't find it. <laughs> so I'm looking at the map, and it's just me and the guys and and uh, English road manager, and I'm and I'm saying, well, look, we just went by uh, uh, an exit on the thing, and it said Alspark. So I'll just find out where Alspark is on the map and we'll know where we are. We go another 10 miles, there's another sign, Alspark. Hmm. And I'm going, cheap, you know, I, what's going on here? 10 more miles, another Alspark sign. I go, well, this must be the size of LA. Right. This, this, this place called Alspark. And, uh, well, to make a long story short, we took the next exit. Turns out that Alspark is the German name for exit. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, yeah. That's funny. Too bad you didn't have a GPS back then, right? Oh, no, no. We, we were yeah. old school. Right. You had to be a, a Boy Scout with a, with a uh, you know, with an actual map spread <laughs> out in the car. Of course, back in those days, if we were late for a gig, we didn't much care. We were having a ball. Yeah. yeah. It, for, it, in my mind, it was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Yeah. I can't believe I'm playing around in, in Europe or, you know, whatever. Right. You know, it was it was always a surprise. It was always a, a wonderful adventure. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you know being from Berkeley, but you actually grew up in Baltimore. So how, um, how, yeah. did, how did the journey to San Francisco come about? You know, it was real easy. Uh, I remember when I was 13, and if you ask any man, any uh, guitar player from my generation, they're going to give you the same exact answer. It all started on a Sunday night in 1964, and we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And it blew my mind. And And the next day, I changed my hair, I mm-hmm. changed everything, I started working on Beatles songs, and, you know, it was, that's, we, we realized in our hearts, this is what we want to be, this is what we're going to do. And once you know, a couple of years later, I moved to California to seek my fortune. Yeah. Who was like, who your Beatle? Like, everyone had their own Beatle, who was your guy? Oh, uh, well, I loved all of them. I mean, I loved John Lennon, obviously, he was a great genius, but Paul and George, and of course, Ringo. Um, when I was on K Fox, you know, I did the morning show 
on K Fox Radio for 17 years. Right. And uh, I was getting up at four in the morning. I, you know, I don't know how I did that, but <laughs> it's been a couple of years since I did it. But as part of my thing, uh, part of my thing, I got to interview the surviving Beatles. Oh, wow. I got to interview Ringo Starr two or three times. Uh, I, I interviewed Paul McCartney a couple times. Uh, George Martin, uh, Jeff Emmerich, a lot of those guys, and I talked about the, the nuts and bolts of recording the Beatles and how it was, you know, it, it inspired the rest of us. You know, like they would come up with a song, and it would it would it would be reflected in my songwriting for the next, you know, twelve months. So when I started looking looking around to do what am I going to do next in my life I had a friend that was in California saying come on out man there's lots of beautiful women and lots of gigs lots of bands and lots of clubs to play in and I came out to California my first well the first thing I did was I was playing in the streets with my 12 string guitar was playing on the corner of Telegraph Avenue and uh, UC. So I was out there every day playing, uh, and one day this guy walks up to me, Malcolm was his name, and he says, I, you know, it's too bad you don't have a band. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, if you had a band, uh, you know, I need a, a house band for my bar called the Long Branch, and we need a house band by this weekend. And it was already Tuesday or Wednesday. Right. And I lied to the guys. Oh, I got a band. We're really good. <laughs> so he goes, okay, be there Saturday night at such and such a time. So I went out and started a band in two days. And that band stayed together for 18 years and had a ton of hit records. And I can't believe it lasted that long. How did you find the, the bandmates? Well, I had Steve Wright, the bass right. player, was a good friend of mine. Uh, we, we were just starting to write songs, and we played a couple of gigs on the street. And uh, and then he said, hey, you know, and then here it is, like, I got to put a band together in three days. So... He says, well, you know, my, my brother-in-law is a pretty decent drummer. I, we could get him for a couple of days. And he saw this other guy I knew in high school was a pretty good guitar player. And we just threw that band together. And it lasted for 17 years, which is amazing to me. Uh, and we had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of, you know, there was a, uh, there was, you know, what, what's the word? It was, it was kismet, man. Yeah. We, you know, everybody came together, and uh, I still love these guys now. I'm, I'm the only guy surviving member of the original Greg Ginn band, except for Larry Lynch, the drummer, who, by the way, drank milk every night, <laughs> went to bed early, and didn't do drugs. Right. He's still alive. I'm still alive, which is a mind blow because you would have thought I was the most abusive guy of the bunch. You would have thought I would have died first. But somehow I, I made it through, and here I am. I'm still, I'm still kicking, man. 
Yeah, and you you know recently released Re- uh, Rekindled, which is which is a fantastic album. Oh yeah, hey, I'm, you know where I'm going right now? I'm on my way to the studio. I pulled over to, to talk to you. I'm in Berkeley, but I'm driving down to Campbell, and we're gonna restart uh, start recording the next album. Oh, okay, awesome. Now, do you, do you have a, a title for that album yet? <laughs> Uh, not yet, no, but, uh, you know, it's bad luck to name the album before you right. before you record it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure it'll be some sort of pun with your name, right, like the rest of them? Yeah, you know, I tried to get out of that, and people were freaking out. They go, no, you absolutely, positively have to have chin puns. Yeah. For the rest of my life, I'm going to be cursed with that. Yeah, but, like, your, your first couple weren't, you know, puns, so how, how did that whole thing start? Well, yeah, it was never planned. I mean, the first album was called Dread Kid. Right. And it was a kind of a singer-songwriter album. And then the second album came out a year later, Old Berserkly, and I said, how about Dread Kid again? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fine, that kind of rhymes. And then the next one came out, and they were coming to meet for another title. I said, how about Neck of Kid? That makes sense. And, of course, at that point, I had created a monster that would never die. And it's still going to this day. Yeah. <laughs> now, because yeah, uh, Rekindled is fantastic, but when you like you know, took the break from, you know, I guess, performing and you were a DJ, were you still writing songs? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I did a lot of uh, literary writing during that period because I, I was on, I get up, I get up about four in the morning Drive to San Francisco. I'd be on the air by five fifteen, uh, and I'd be done by eleven o'clock. So I'd grab a sandwich and go home, you know, like around noon, and I'd have the whole day to write. And I would, I would sit down and write, you know, twenty, thirty pages in a day. It was, a, it was a very creative, uh, creative environment. And I think because I was always doing interviews, I would get ideas. You know, I was talking about uh, interviewing the Beatles, right. but I had, you know, I asked uh, Ringo and Paul the same question. I said, where do the Beatles get their music? And there were no, there were no, there weren't, you know, you couldn't, there weren't import stops. Where, how did the Beatles get a copy of uh, Big Dolly Miss Molly? And he said, oh, we used to get our records from Merchant Marines that would go back and forth between Liverpool and New York. Oh, wow. And uh, they would bring back all the great 45s that they would buy in New York. And then they would find their way into, you know, you know, flea markets and places like that. And that's where the Beatles came in. And they would hunt these... You know, like a new Arthur Alexander record or a new, uh, you know, Solomon Burke or something. And they would just jump on it. And, of course, they were quick studies. So they could literally work out a song that afternoon and do it that night. Well, were you like that, too? Quick to pick it up? Yeah, you know, we were. We, we used to rehearse every day. Uh, that was back when I was a young man. Yeah. But we, you know, we would meet, meet like around noon every day. We would rehearse all day, every day. We would kick around song ideas and hang out. Uh, I think that's part of it, you know, the fact that you're 
you're with these guys 24 seven and you know, they're like your brothers, you know what I mean? So there's a real like uh, camaraderie. And you know, when you're in a band and in the early days, it's always us against the world, right? right. That's the way it's gotta be. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, I guess the breakup song puts you guys on, on the map. Uh, and which was yeah. Yeah, a fantastic song. Uh, was that an easy one to write? Actually, I had I I wrote I wrote the uh, the uh, the verses, and I was at the down at the rehearsal space, and I was just playing the verses for Steve Wright. So he says, "I got this other idea for a chorus," and we started singing the "They Don't Write Them Like That Anymore" song, and it, it, the two halves came together. And I wrote that song in about 15 minutes. You know, it's amazing with the songs that you, you know, you spin out, just spin them out. They're the great songs. The ones that you slave over for two weeks don't even make the album. But the songs that you just kind of come up with out of the clear blue, those are your primary songs. And that was like, 
the breakup song has been used in a million commercials, right. radio shows, it's been in a million movies. Yeah, video games. Uh, yeah. What was it? Uh, not Beautiful Girls. It's been in about a half a dozen movies. Yeah. One of them is called The Groomsmen, and it was about a band uh, that reforming it for a... Uh, a wedding reunion and the song that they're playing is a breakup song hmm. and it shows them rehearsing in a garage John Leguizano was was, was me huh. and he was singing my parts and then uh, some of the guy you know it was a Rat Pack kind of movie but it was a lot of fun I remember seeing him in the movie and I just wanted to stand up and go that's my song but my wife said no don't do that yeah right <laughs> Do you remember where you were the first time you heard that on the radio? Yeah, I was driving at a rehearsal. I was going, and I pulled over and cranked that sucker up. <laughs> I also remember where I was and what I was doing when I found out that Jeopardy was number one. You know, that's something that you'll never, unless you have number ones all the time, which I didn't. Right. But, the, you know, the fact that uh, we were on tour with Journey, we were opening for Journey, and uh, we we stopped at um, Wounded De Wounded Knee, uh, Custer's Last Stand, okay. the Little Bighorn, and uh, we went because we would occasionally stop and see touristy things, and we saw this, but we got we came over, you know, had you know toured the area, went to the gift shop, they had a they had a payphone in the gift shop, so I called the record company back in L.A. just to see how the because we used to I think on Thursday that the uh, numbers would come out, <clears throat> and the guy says, "Are you sitting down?" I said, "I can't sit down. I'm in uh, I'm in I'm, I'm in uh, Little Bighorn." Yeah. He said, "Well, your record number one." <laughs> it was like, "Oh my God." I, I always remember that, and I remember that we all got a picture of margaritas and got totally tanked. <laughs> yeah, you definitely deserve that picture, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and of course, when, when uh, Weird Al did his version of the song, right. it was even better, man, because it was mailbox money for me, and he could go on the road and support yeah. the gig, so great. Yeah, and, and it gave your song more you know, recognition as well.
I still get mailbox money from Weird Al. God bless that man. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah, he's brilliant with all his Oh, yeah. And you know what? He put that album, he put that song on Weird Al's Greatest Hits went to platinum. Right. It was unbelievable. So I had it like it was like I had a hit all over again. Yeah. And to this day, I still see him recording, uh, doing that song occasionally live. And it's always a kick. That's right, Al. You lost. And let me tell you what you didn't win. A 20-volume set of the Encyclopedia International, a case of turtle wax, and a year's supply of rice the San Francisco treat. But that's not all. You also made yourself look like a jerk in front of millions of people. And you brought shame and disgrace on your family name for generations to come. You don't get to come back tomorrow. You don't even get a lousy copy of our home game. You're a complete loser. fantastic I, I don't really think anyone's turned him down I think actually Prince turned him down but every, other than that I think everyone Prince you know, was the only guy I asked him that question right and he said yeah Prince was the only guy and he took himself a little too seriously I think oh yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely and then 
you were in the video for I Lost on Jeopardy. Was that your idea, or did uh, Weird Al ask you to be in it? Uh, that was Weird Al. He called me, he said, hey, you want to be on the video? And I said, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I went down to L.A., and I hung out with him for that day. We did the video shoot. I got to meet Don Pardo. Oh, yeah. Remember Don Pardo? Oh, yeah, he was great. You know, and that, of course, he's gone now, but I met him... Uh, at the video shoot, and we were hanging out the whole day. Right. Plus, I gotta say, Weird Al's a wonderful guy. He, you know, a load of laughs, and mm. keeps you laughing, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, just speaking of Darn Pardo, you were also on Saturday Night Live, right? Sure was. Yeah, yeah. How was that experience? Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I was uh, the, the guest host that week was Howard Cosell. Oh, boy. <laughs> Remember Howard Cosell? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I loved Howard Cosell. Yeah. And he had the dressing room directly across the hall from my dressing room. So I, I was... And he had... He, all he did was watch hockey and drink Old Granddad. <laughs> so I go over there with shots of Old Granddad. And he always... He never left... You know, he never left character. It was always Howard Cosell. You know what I mean? Like, and, and they would they would bring in a catered around one o'clock every day, and and Howard would do a critique on it. Right. Meatloaf is unbelievably bad. I would not serve this to a dog. And he would go on pretending it was funny. Yeah, old granddad, I think that is so disgusting. Oh my god. Isn't it? Oh god. You know, you got you got but he was the old granddad. That right. it really made sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know if you've you've seen like the meme with him and Bruce Jenner and O. J. Simpson and then they do like a, a line saying that I've seen the future and you won't believe this shit. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it, it's brilliant, you know, because I, I think they were, they, I don't know if it was set, uh, Monday Night Football, whatever they were doing, Why World of Sports, but they have both of those or all three of them in the booth, and then someone wrote, you know, that line, the caption, which is brilliant. <laughs> brilliant, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun, and I, I really enjoyed it. And we had a great cast in those days with Joe Piscopo and right. uh, Mike Myers and uh, Dana Carvey. It was great. It was a great cast. Yeah, well, you, I'm sure then you must have hit, like, The Tonight Show and, like, all of the other shows as well, American Bandstand. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, when, when uh, one, of the, one of the highlights of my life was when we got the ASCAP Award for Jeopardy back okay. in 83. It was one of the most performed songs of 83. So I go to the ASCAP Awards, and uh, Doc Severinsen, and the NBC Orchestra was the band for the ASCAP Awards. And I heard Doc Severinsen do the entire version of Jeopardy. And he had a great arrangement. <laughs> and I heard that NBC and Doc Severinsen do that song. It was like, I was in heaven. Right. I can still remember it. It was great. Yeah. Have, have there been a lot of covers of that song or no? Besides Weird Al's parody? Yeah, 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 there has been. You know, there's been a lot of um, uh, rap and hip-hop versions. Uh, a German black artist had a big hit with it, in Germany, obviously, 
in a German rap thing. It was really kind of strange. <laughs> but yeah, that and uh, Break the Song have gotten tons of covers over the years. Right. Yeah. And the um, the Contagious album that had, um, I think that's probably my favorite album of yours. And with uh, Hard Times, I love that song, Worst Can Happen. I mean, I don't think it really had too many hits on it. Reunited, I think it was a hit for you guys as well, right? And then, because I guess your career spanned like all different variations, eight track cassettes, albums, CDs, now streaming. 
What? Hey man, I got I got eight tracks of my first three or four albums. Yeah, right. I still yeah. got them. I don't have a machine, but yeah. I got the eight tracks. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, what, what, eight cassettes, yeah. eight tracks, uh, reel to reel, right. everything. Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been it's been great being on the uh, you know the the razor's edge of all of the technology because. The technology of recording and, and, and releasing music has completely changed since I started. Right. And, uh, you know, now, I, I, you know, it's a completely different animal. Yeah. And, like, what like what are your expectations? Like, you know, Kindle's been out for a little while now, but, like, the, the, you said the business changes so much. Like, is it just airplay to get it out there? I mean, because no one really buys CDs anymore. Yeah, you know, I... Uh, I guess I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. Right. You know, I, uh, everything that seems logical, everything that I do is stems out of whatever I did before it. So, yeah, I'm working on a novel right now. I'm working on a whole bunch of songs for the next album. Uh, yeah, and you know, I'm uh, plus we're doing gigs, so I'm rehearsing with the band. It's, it's a lot of fun, man. Okay. I can't wait. In fact, I'm going to be uh, jumping in the car here and going down the uh, going down the freeway. Okay. I can't wait. Yeah. Do you have any uh, gigs coming like the East Coast? Yeah. Um, I don't know offhand. You have to look at the GregBin.com website. I don't know if it's been updated. Right. Just did a bunch of gigs back east, and uh, we should have something in the springtime. I would think. Oh, awesome. Okay. And I guess it was about maybe. 15, 14 years ago, you were on a show called like "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time." That had artists kind of you know perform oh, yeah. their songs, yeah. And w- which you guys did a great job. Then you also did a cover of "Boulevard of Broken Dreams" by Green Day. How how did that come yeah. out? And like, how did you pick that song? Well, I was trying to come up with a song that I liked, you know, a current song, right? Um, and I, I that was one of my. I mean, I love Green Day, and they 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 followed me up through the clubs in uh, Berkeley, California, where they're from. And I, you know, I, I met those guys and uh, it was, it, it, when, it, when, the, when the guy said, we need to do a song, you gotta come up with it in the next hour, I immediately thought of Boulevard uh, of Broken Breeze. And it was a lot of fun. I made up a, a kind of an arrangement it was like a free bird arrangement. It right. started and then it got, and then it went to double time, and uh, you know it was, it was a lot of fun there. Yeah, and then like oh, one more. I know you were really close to uh, Eddie Money, who recently passed away. Do you have any good stories yeah. to share with about Eddie? I got I got nothing but stories about Ed. I love the man. He was my brother. Uh, you know, it just killed me when he died. And, right. You know, close to his family and his wife and his kids. You know, we played a million gigs. In fact, a year ago today, I was playing a gig with Eddie. Right. And I remember, by the way, when he told me, it was about a year ago today, uh, we were doing some pre-Christmas gigs, and I remember him telling me that he had just been diagnosed with esophageal cancer stage four and I'm going oh my god there's no going back from stage four right and um, you know it it, it shocked me 
And he still went out and played some gigs. He still went out and played gigs. It was amazing. Yeah. But uh, I'll always think that he was one of the first guys I ever met. When I came to California from Baltimore in 1970, he was the lead singer of a band called The Rockets. And The Rockets were the number one band in Berkeley, California. And they were kind of like a free, you know, like uh, Paul Kossoff. They, they were, uh, you know, and he had that great gravelly voice and they had some great songs, I remember. And, uh, and then he went solo and he signed up with Bill Graham, who was another friend with, with mine. So, you know, uh, I've been with Edge from day one and I miss him every day, my friend. Yeah, I mean, luckily we still have his music to listen to. Yeah, death is, a, death is part of life and I've lost all the guys in my original band except for Larry Lynch. Right. I've lost, you know, I've lost all my roadies and everybody that had anybody to do with, and, you know, and of course all my friends like Eddie, they're dropping like flies. It's really depressing. Yeah, I know. But at least you still have the memories, you know, to, to think about the good times you had with those guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember, Eddie used to tell me the same jokes all the time. <laughs> he was like my dad in that respect. You know, he would always say, hey, did you see me on TV the other day? And, uh, yeah. He said, yeah, well, keep in mind that the, uh, the camera adds 10 pounds. And I said, well, Ed, how many, how many cameras were they using? <laughs> <laughs> But I really appreciate your time today, and uh, I'll look out for you when you guys come to the East Coast. Fantastic, man. Thanks again. And a special thanks to Greg for joining me today. Go check out Rekindled and the rest of his albums. They're all fantastic. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Gregkin. His website is gregkin.com. And if you have a show idea or a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first all one nine. Or on Facebook, liking the page Living My Youth. You can rate and review the show on iTunes. I would appreciate that. And if you don't have iTunes, it's not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. A new episode comes out every Wednesday. And we'll see you next week.